You're tuned to HybridPod, a podcast exploring conversations of critical digital pedagogy, listening for ways to empower students and champion learning. It's the oral side of hybrid pedagogy, a digital journal of learning, teaching, and technology. I'm Chris Friend from St. Leo University. This whole episode derives from one simple question. Why isn't school more fun? I learned when I was in high school that I couldn't take any of my classes or assignments or homework or presentations seriously unless I could have some fun with them. I always needed to have some twist to make them unusual, challenging, unnecessarily complex, or humorous before I'd want to lose myself in them. Even during my master's program, I always looked for ways to make my assignments more interesting by adding a layer of complexity or an element of silliness. In short, I enjoyed classes and projects when I could play with them, because play is fun and doesn't feel like real work. The same thinking led me to work at Walt Disney World for about 16 years after graduation from high school. It was fun, plain and simple. Fred Rogers, famous in America for creating and hosting Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, said, Play is often talked about as if it were a relief from serious learning. But for children, play is serious learning. Play is really the work of childhood. Unfortunately, school is often anything but playful. Between compulsory attendance, state-mandated testing, and the regimented routine of bell schedules, students are often expected to conform and comply, rather than to improvise and experiment. It seems there should be a way to incorporate play into education, making school something that students enjoy, look forward to, and find productive. To help me explore the integration of play and education, I spoke with Kyle Stedman. I'm Kyle Stedman, Assistant Professor of English at Rockford University. Creator and host of the podcast Plugs Play Pedagogy. In his show, Kyle looks at the ways technology and digital spaces intersect with the way we teach writing and rhetoric classes. He talks a lot about the fun and playful components of good composition courses. I also spoke with Stephanie Vai. I'm Stephanie Vai. I'm an associate professor of writing and rhetoric at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. Who has written numerous articles on game studies and the use of gaming in classrooms. Stephanie is, by the way, arguably the best dissertation committee chair anyone could ever ask for. Well, you know, you did have a good dissertation director, I hope. And yes, I might be a little biased. Oh, this is so sweet. I just want to hug everyone. And finally, I talked with Jesse Stommel. I'm Jesse Stommel, and I am the director of hybrid pedagogy. And I'm also an assistant professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Who has written a number of articles on the use of play in learning and who has a bit of a reputation for being silly. These conversations revealed that play in education isn't a simple matter of studying grade school children while they're at recess. The very concept of play shows up in our identities, our offices, our classrooms, our professional disciplines, and our free time. Play is far more pervasive than I had expected, a phenomenon I hope this episode reinforces. Let's start with identities, and a disclaimer. Everyone you'll hear in this episode, including me, identifies as a playful person, and each of us wears our silliness on our sleeves. So if you're listening for balanced reporting, you probably won't find it in this episode. But you will hear a bit of a plea from playful people who work in academia, a field that's rarely considered playful itself. Academics are expected to be serious, not silly. I don't think I could be the uber-serious professor. I wouldn't want to be. And, and you know... I remember when I first started teaching, you know, there's always the people who say on your first day, you better be hard. You better really prove that that you are the person to be messed with. And I think like maybe for four semesters in grad school, I kind of tried that and it never really worked. After about 30 seconds, I would fall into real me. And 
very quickly I started to say, why? What's the purpose here? What am I even? What am I even pretending? So, so on on the first day, I I would say my persona is more the complete opposite. It's more quirky and associative. And this makes me think of this. And did you know about this? And oh, let me show you this. Okay, look, this is what we're doing in this class. And and that's the way I really am. I really am thinking that way. And and it's a little bit of a performance. And it might even be played up a little bit. I mean, all all teaching is performance in some ways. But but I like that. I it's it's a much closer to who I really want to present myself as 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 the maybe kind of weird maybe kind of quirky but still knowledgeable coach who's going to walk you through this stuff and play can be a part of that yeah well and as a scholar too i mean i i go to see sometimes and dress goofy and have my stripy socks or whatever and you know i'm not walking around in a, a black business suit looking dour and super professional because a that's not who i am but b i mean it feels like a performance that's artificial to me. It feels like a performance that's trying to say, look how serious and scholarly I am. Like, if you are that kind of person that is a little bit quirky and likes to joke around with your students and things like that, why can't you be that and be really smart and be really scholarly and be a good teacher? You can be. But I think sometimes, and I don't know how it is for you guys, guys specifically, but for women, I think we often do have a kind of issue in the classroom where we have to perform in certain ways so as to not invite students trying to press boundaries too much. So being a young female professor especially, you worry that if I'm too fun or if I'm too approachable, will I start getting a bunch of students trying to you know, ask for things that they shouldn't, like, they'll just walk all over me, they'll be asking me to turn in their work late all the time, they won't respect me, etc, etc. And I've definitely had those moments, and I've tried to really, you know, show that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fun person, I like to play around in the classroom, but I'm a serious person too, and this is a place that we're trying to learn, and, and sometimes it's difficult, because I'll get comments like, on my student evaluations. She's really nice in class, but then she's really harsh in her evaluation. Or the person that she is in the classroom isn't the same as the person who's grading me. Mm, wow. It's been really interesting for me, and I don't know if that's a gendered thing or not. That same sense of self-expression can also be applied in our workspaces through, for instance, how we decorate our offices. Kyle makes sure that his office space aligns with the professional persona he adopts, his office is, to an extent, a play space. Well, it's funny that the idea of fun stuff in your office and and how there's a sense in which that's for me, like actually because I like fun and I like having things. I like I have a, a twenty-sided die that I, I constantly play with. It just sits there and I roll it and I and I keep it in my hand. I have a, a TARDIS and a dinosaur and Star Wars stuff, and you can see my pixel art behind me here. I, and it's largely it is just because I want to have a room that I think is fun to work in. But it's funny how sometimes I forget that stuff is there. And some students come in and they kind of look around and are like, what is happening here? And some come in and immediately dive in and actually enjoy the fun. I, I have some um, some time traveler uh, magnets where you you have it's like a it's like a paper doll. You know, you, like you have like the 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 man in his underwear and then you can like put the the space helmet on him or you can put the the cowboy hat on him and or, or whatever and i've never i've had those on a part of my desk i can't see because the, the desk is magnetic and no one has ever mentioned them and just last week someone came in and started playing with them and started making a big deal and we talked about them and we started it kind of led to this really great conversation and it what was that as as deep and meaningful as 
as the play you're talking about, Stephanie, in class. Well, well, no, not in this case. It's just play just for play's sake. And yet, and yet still, I think the next time I see that student, I think we might work together a little more. I, I think that there's a little bit of rapport that gets built. I wish you could see all of my office, and I wish I could see all of your offices too, because there are so many pieces in here that show my personality. I have stuffed animals. I have a ninja hamster. I have a little postcard of a chipmunk sitting down at a zombie killer party. I have lucky cats. I have sparkle ponies. If you don't know what a sparkle pony is, hang on. I'll explain later. I have dice, uh, more Lego stuff, just random stuff everywhere. And I think that you're right. Like Students will come in and they'll see those things and they're like, oh, what is that? You know, why do you have those things? Oh, I have a mug that says shit just got real. And a student who was one of my grad students was in here the other day. And he's like, in the middle of a sentence, he goes, I like your mug, by the way. Okay, back to what we were talking about. (laughs) And, you know, it's funny because I have often thought my office is not particularly professional looking. And it's not as serious as some of the other professors offices here. And I've wondered if that is a good or a bad thing or if it just is. But I think you're right, Kyle, in that it opens it up for students to see me as a human being (laughs) who enjoys fun things. And then we have moments where we can talk about what those things are. And especially for students who are also kind of like geeky as well, we have shared moments. Showing who we really are in the private-ish space of our offices is one thing. But the public performance in our classes is something we share openly with our students and use to create a space for learning. For an academic, it's okay to geek out about your field, but students have a different set of social norms to navigate. I don't know, is is it fair to say that that we might have a more situated, solid sense of our identity than some college students do, right? That they're still very often in a place of trying to figure out who they are and, and trying to try on different performances of who they are in a classroom. This is wrapped up in all of the ways you're supposed to present yourself, and it is a gendered presentation of of how much can I show that I'm into things? How much can I show that I'm playful and I I see life as an adventure? I mean, if that's not valued, that's not going to show up, even though they might be jiving more inside. And how much, as a student, can I admit to enjoying what's going on in a class, too? Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, cultural um, identity about I've just I'm here because I've got to get the diploma and, you know, I'm just going through my classes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like there are definitely some students who are they're really joyful about classes and, and they're here to learn and they're super psyched about it. But on the whole, you know, there's kind of a stereotype of I'm not going to really get into this. It's just kind of a thing, a hurdle or a hoop to get through and if I express too much excitement about academic stuff what does that say about me future academic in the making is what it says come be one of us one thing we haven't really discussed yet is the inevitable consequence of play at some point we're all going to experience failure we'll hear more about this in the next episode of hybrid pod but maybe part of what we are teaching students when we incorporate play into the classroom is the value of trying stuff and learning when we don't get it right. Well, and sometimes playing around with new things is challenging, right? And challenging is scary because what if you fail? What if you do it wrong? What if you look stupid in front of other people? And, you know, as Kyle said, like a lot of times the students are really, they're developing their personas, they're trying on new identities, and a lot of times that identity is 
something that's helping them feel secure and it's comforting for them and to, to mess with that and to have that tension, like I'm gonna try something new and maybe I'm gonna totally screw it up can really be threatening, I think, to identity. And, and play, I think, can be something that can be really threatening in that way. There's a lot of really real tension going on there and especially if you're a traditional age student and you're trying to find yourself and you're here with all these new people and you don't know what you're gonna do or whether you're even gonna get a job when you graduate and you're running from class to class with barely any time to do downtime or eat food. I don't know, it, it is scary and threatening in a lot of ways. So our students are put in uncomfortable situations when we ask them to play with new ideas. You know, I'd argue that's a good thing, that we're encouraging our students to move outside their comfort zones, growing and developing as they play with new ideas or tasks. But we need to make sure that we expect the same of ourselves, we as teachers need to push ourselves beyond our comfort zones, experimenting with what we can do in our classes. Kyle had earlier mentioned an experiment he did with Twitter. One of the things that, that I was wondering while you were talking, you said, um, you know, I, last semester I tried using Twitter and it didn't work. And, and the way you said it didn't work, I thought was fantastic because you, you threw out the idea that you were using it. And then you, you had that little pause, that moment of reflection. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, and that didn't go over so well. And, and I started realizing that, you know, we, we have to turn our classes into an opportunity for us to play with how we present the material. Yeah. And I wonder if we do a good job of telling our students that. Like, they come in on day one and we give them a syllabus and we say this is what the class is going to be. How often do we tell them that and we have no clue if it's going to work right because we've never tried it before? Or if I do the same thing two or three semesters in a row, I get simply bored with it. And I have to mix things up so that I preserve that level of excitement and enthusiasm that our students need to see in us to, to know that what we're doing is actually important to us. And, and so my classrooms always become little experiments. It has to be. It's always, will this work? Does this work better than it did last time? Does this work differently with different groups of people? How will this particular twist that I'm throwing on it this time make things better, or will it completely crash and burn? And I wonder if we should draw more attention to that, like tell our students, hey kids, this is an experiment. It might totally fail, and that's okay. I think that that's very true. We should do that. But also I think that we need, especially for junior scholars on the tenure track, to create a space institutionally where playing around with your classes and having things fail is an okay thing. Because I know when I was going through tenure, there were several times where I thought, I'd really like to try that, but I am being very heavily evaluated on my student evals. And so what if that does totally crash and burn and then it does again, and then it does again. Like at some point, you have to feel secure whether you're a student or a faculty member that you can play around and that you won't be too heavily um, penalized for things that don't go right. And so I think that you, you're very correct in that we should probably, I could probably do a better job telling my students when I'm experimenting with things and I don't even know if this is gonna work, but let's try it. But I think we also need to create spaces in the institution where you can say, hey, you know what, I know you're freaking out about getting tenure because that's what happens, but if you want to try things in your class, that's okay. And we need to look at your student evaluations in the context of everything else 
and talk with you about your pedagogical choices and ask, this looks like it didn't work really well. What was going on there? Were you trying something new? Are you gonna try it again in a different way? I don't know. So, so we're, we're back again to the, the idea of if I really do get to play with something the way I want to, it's scary. That, that just that doesn't make sense inside my head. Like if, if I my entire life as I was a child, as I've grown up, if there's something that I'm playing with, it is the least intimidating, least frightening thing of my day. It's the thing that I enjoy just getting completely wrapped up in. And and by playing with it, there is no risk. There is no danger. And yet we are afraid to play. Play is deadly serious. You started off with that. I didn't say deadly. I absolutely did not say anything about death. You came up with that one on your own. Well, and so is it that we can't get away from the evaluative assessment nature, both on our ends and on, yeah, you know, on the other, like, like we're being evaluated. I'm starting to think it's the structures. Yeah. Well, I think that's very true because when you when you ask students about writing outside of class, that kind of writing that they do is very different than the kind of writing that they do for us. And I think the kind of play that we do outside of classes is very different than the kind of play even that we incorporate into class. I mean, again, it's it's a very structured kind of play that I bring into a classroom. It's not a free-for-all. Um, it has learning goals attached to it. It usually has assignments attached to it. It's... It's very much a part of the class, whereas if we were just playing outside of an educational system, it would look and sound really different. Jesse Stommel agrees that play is very much a part of the class, but he's a little less insistent on attaching outcomes and assignments, an assertion I'll challenge later in this episode. Play is only good play if it has intrinsic value. If what is most important about the play is the doing of the play, and not what comes of the play or what the play builds towards. That, to me, is at odds in many ways with what we often think of as good pedagogical practice. So often we hear something like best practices, or we hear learning outcomes, and it's very focused on what we build, what we make, what the student's learning looks like at the end, and it also becomes something we can assess, something we can neat and tidily assess. And so I think there is something that's going on there with what the American institutional system looks like and what it does to people, how it makes us perform as teachers and how it makes students perform as students. Does it do anything good? Does it do anything good? I don't know. Um, It's a great question, Chris. I still can't answer that question, but I think there's something to that difference I was identifying between playing around with an idea or an identity and playing a scripted role set out by an institution, a discipline, or a society. There's a tension here, either actual or perceived, between the fun and the serious. There's a presumption that playing the part of a professional must be serious, and playing around with ideas should not be. People think differently about the role of play and how appropriate it is in various situations, and we talked a bit about that divide in thinking. Well, it's one that I would say plays into stereotypes about what is appropriate in particular situations. And so, again, I think we're, we're even fighting this with the idea of play itself. Is play appropriate for classrooms? We've been having this conversation, right? Because there are some people who will say, no, absolutely not. The classroom is a place for serious learning to take place, not for play. 
is the academic conference a place for play? Right? Seize well, I mean, the day. How threatening can that be? Apparently very threatening. Wow. As an aside to listeners who aren't in rhetoric and composition, Seize the Day is an alternate reality role-playing game that's part of the annual Conference on College Composition and Communication. There's a card deck, a quest book, and prizes in the form of sparkle ponies, homemade crafts that reek of silliness but that represent achievement in a professional space, if not through traditional means. In 2014, this aspect of the conference sparked a good deal of online debate as participants argued whether such silliness affected the field's image or helped create a sense of community and inclusion. The debate called into question the legitimacy of using play as a means of getting things done. Richard Colby from the University of Denver wrote a blog post with an excellent summary of what he calls sparkle pony drama, if you'd like to learn details of the story. Well, and just to be clear... I think play is legit, and I think play is real learning. But it's a constant process of me fighting against what I think other people believe I should be doing. And as an academic, and as a woman, I think I've been dealing with that like nearly my entire life and nearly my entire professional academic life, that I have been working to learn what is expected of me to play the game of academia. Once again, there's that tension between playing around, what Stephanie says is legit, and a role to play dictated by others. We're dealing with two different kinds of play here. One is driven by exploration and defining the rules, the spaces, and the boundaries of play. The other is constrained and improvised within a set of predetermined rules. Both are performances, but the first one, the legit learning form, involves more uncertainty and creativity. I talked with Jesse about this difference. He first told me about the kinds of boundary-exploring play that can lead to real learning, sharing a few ideas about the shape that play can take in a classroom and the spaces in which this play happens. I think that I also like the idea of a playground, that essentially we think about play as a space, and it can be a physical space, but it's something that we move across, something that we move in and out of. It's not something, and this is to kind of push against the way that play can be taken way to the other extreme, where it's this kind of loosey-goosey thing, completely intangible, completely abstract. I like the notion of a playground because it suggests that this is actually grounded. It has a boundary. It has a frame. It has a framework. So Sean Michael Morris and I have talked about improvisation within a framework, that essentially the best kind of learning, the best kind of educational play is enabled best when there's a clear framework, when it has, when it has a, a boundary around it. Essentially, when you walk onto a playground and you look around, what you see is you see all the things that people have put there, um, if we're talking about educational play, that learning designers, that pedagogues, that teachers have put there. They've essentially arranged toys in a room. They've arranged objects on a playground that you can interact with in different ways. What's interesting is that I think it's not that the boundary is there to hold everything in. The boundary is actually there for us to rub up against it. So the learning happens at the point that the course overflows its container at the point that the play pushes on those boundaries, not to the point of falling out completely out of the playground, but so that the, the sort of the learning, the sort of epiphany of the play is at the point that you, you step outside of the boundary and then that allows you to kind of reflect on how is that space holding me? 
And how am I able, how do I have agency to actually invent that boundary for myself? So essentially the teacher sets up a boundary, sets up a framework as a starting place. But ultimately, the learning environment has to be constructed by the participants. So a boundary is there from the start, but through the play, the players, the learners, end up recreating that boundary for themselves. That kind of creative play is very different from the improvisational play that happens in, of all places, theater and sports. I'm using the word play in a very particular way, because if I were playing baseball, or if I were playing football or soccer, those have very, very clear goals. And the frame, the rules of those games are not very improvisational. They're, they're pretty set. I would actually disagree with you. Well, I'm not a sports guy, so I'm sure you're right. <laughs> well, I'm not a sports guy either, but I mean, the, the frame of a game is very clearly set. You have very particular rules. You have a very clearly defined playing field. And yet everything that or transpires within that field is pure improvisation. And that the reason people go to see a game is to watch the improvisation that takes place within the boundaries that are the exact same every single time those games take place. Yeah, so it's like, it's like a Shakespeare play, that it has a script, it has, it has a, um, a set of lines that are meant to be read, it has a set of characters, and yet what actually becomes interesting is seeing how those things are interpreted. Mm -hmm. A very different kind of improvisation than just going and watching pure improvisational theater where there is no script and you're just watching. There's almost something exciting. There's something tense about watching how people are going to interpret, adapt, remix, push against. And it's one of the things that happens, one of the ex most excited parts of sports watching is when there's a, when there's a boundary case, when there's sort of a, a sort of a debate about a particular choice that was made. And it becomes very exciting to see what the referee is going to determine. And then people are angry on one side or the other. And those become actually the things that we, that we rally around when we're watching sports. I wonder though how that's different from play that happens on a playground. The, the, the difference is how rigid the, the boundaries and the rules are. It isn't, that isn't what excites you about a play, a, a play field. It's not the tensions of, oh, how are they going to hang on those monkey bars? Right. There's something, it's, it's much more rowdy in the sense that what's more interesting is not how they're going to hang on the monkey bars, but what are the monkey bars going to be? Is that going to be a castle? Is that going to be a, like a pure invention happens mm -hmm. on a playground. It's the more emergent stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This difference between emergent or creative and predefined or rule-driven play might be particularly familiar to fans of one toy-based Oscar-nominated film from 2014. That's right, I'm talking Lego bricks. If you know Jesse, Kyle, or Stephanie, ask them some time about their Lego collections. They sort of freak out. I do! I love Legos! Legos are really fun. You asked about my Legos, that was fun. In the Lego movie and its corresponding video game collection, there's a distinction between regular builders, those who require a set of instructions before they can build something, and the expert builders, those who can create something new from whatever is available. Both forms of play have value, but we need to understand that they expect very different things from those who are playing. We also need to understand what our use of play in the classroom says about our view of learning outcomes. 
Play can be used either in support of learning, as a means to an end, or as learning itself, as the entire point and purpose of a lesson. Stephanie uses Lego bricks in class assignments as an opportunity to trick students into learning about rhetoric. I always tell them I'm sneaking it in. I'm basically making it fun so that later on when they realize how much work it actually is, that they're like, oh, well, at least, you know, it was kind of enjoyable, even if it was hard. It sugarcoated a little bit, so it didn't hurt quite as bad. Oh, it's like Mary Poppins. Yep. So Stephanie's students work to create instruction sets. Jesse, for his part, should be their usability tester. To him, the instructions present an outcome, but the creative play happens on the way to that goal. When I play with Legos, I tend to play with sets. I don't just dump out Legos and build stuff. I've tried to get myself to do that, but it isn't what interests me. So there's a sort of focus on outcomes here. I am building a VW bus. I am building a Mini Cooper. I am building the Simpsons house. And what's interesting, though, is not to have that thing done. That's not the part that I'm caught up in. The thing that's interesting to me is the creativity that happens in helping me reach that outcome. So there's a way in which that's an outcome, and the outcome is actually there to enable the play. The outcome is there as the framework that I'm then going to improvise within. And so then the play becomes, what am I going to do with this set of Legos in order to reach that outcome? Am I going to build this collaboratively? Am I going to separate it into little things? Am I going to arrange the pieces? And I do it a little bit differently every time. And there's a way in which the pieces themselves actually inspire me to do something a little bit different with them. Once I've finished building the thing, I just put it aside and I just put it in a drawer, basically. I just put it on a shelf because having the VW bus is not why I did it. The problem with the way that we so often think about outcomes in higher education and in K through 12 is that the outcome is the thing. The outcome is the holy grail. Now, if outcomes were reimagined as just a device, just a plot device, that would be an outcome that would be more useful. So here's to incorporating more creative, meaningful play in our classes and in our lives. I'll let Kyle wrap it up and offer us a terrific challenge. So maybe maybe if, if fun is part of who we are and fun is part of what we're actually doing, if there, there, is, there is a way to have that kind of affective response to the, the things we're working on, yeah, maybe that could be could be built in on a more fundamental level and in our syllabus, but also our assignments, also in the whole whole way we design the course. I mean, that's that's how I approach life in general. It's that life life has to be fun. Life has to be a game. I mean, I I closed on a house last week, which is crazy, scary in a lot of ways, and and there's so much to do. And it's also it's also really fun. It's it's a it's a adventure. And if if I stopped thinking of it as an adventure. I would get overwhelmed and freaked out. So I have to think of it that way. So why, so why not think of my class that way too? I, that's a lot. Earlier in this episode, I hinted at one of the inevitable and less popular elements of play, the possibility of failure. For the next episode, I want to examine the idea of failure, looking at how it works, why it's valuable, and how we can determine when it's good or bad in an educational environment. And I'd like your help. I'll bet you have a story you could tell about a productive failure you've experienced as a learner, whether in class or out. 
I've created a voicemail line for HybridPod, so you can call in and record your story, up to three minutes long, to be included in the next episode. For listeners in America, just call 405-HYBRID-9, preferably from a landline so there's a good connection, and tell your story. That's 405-HYBRID-9. For listeners outside the U.S., reach out to me on Twitter and we'll think of something. I'd like to collect anecdotes of productive failures you've experienced with learning or teaching, and I'll use some of your messages in the next episode. Again, that's 405-HYBRID-9. You've been tuned to Hybrid Pod, a production of Hybrid Pedagogy, Inc. Just because the show is over doesn't mean the conversation ends. Everyone who contributed to this episode is available through Twitter, and so is the show itself. Along those lines, at HybridPod and at Chris underscore friend would like to thank at K Stedman, that's K-S-T-E-D-M-A-N, at Digiret, that's D-I-G-I-R-H-E-T, and at Jessifer, that's J-E-S-S-I-F-E-R, for playing around with this episode. You can subscribe to HybridPod in iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. But the best place to go for links, details, and more is our home on the web. Find us at hybridpod.audio, where you can hear all our episodes and add your voice to the conversations. That's hybridpod.audio. Thanks for listening.